0: Well, keep your Bibles open at this great passage. We've been spending a lot of time on these five verses, uh, packed as they are, with uh, teaching that it takes the entire Bible, really, to unpack, as we've been noticing. Our Lord Jesus is speaking aloud. He's speaking for us to hear. And uh, He uses a number of descriptors, to describe what it means to be a Christian, he talks about salvation that 's one of the big words that we all recognize uh, he 's talked about eternal life, and uh, he now uses another expression to know God. this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. one of the most famous books that are built that, that have been written built around this verse is J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And in typical Packer fashion, he packs in a lot of information, compressing it into a small space. He begins that chapter, one of the chapters in that book, by asking a series of questions. What were we made for? He asks. Answer, to know God. What aim should I set in life? that I might have the knowledge of God. What is eternal life? That This eternal life that Jesus gives, Jesus says it is the knowledge of God. This is eternal life, that they may know you. What is the very best thing you can get out of life, bringing you more joy, delight, contentment, satisfaction, peace, than anything else? Answer, it's the knowledge of God. As we read in Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. What of all states ever that a man ever sees or a person ever sees gives God most pleasure to see. It is when a man or woman knows God himself. In Hosea 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So you can see from that selection of scriptures, knowing God goes to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. All the other things are true. Salvation is true. There's rescue. Eternal life is true. There is life eternal. But life eternal to what? What, what, what is the great goal of, the, of becoming a Christian? It is that we might know God. So we come to this passage this evening, and there are some striking things about these words that we've noticed before and we note again. The first is, of course, that Jesus explains this eternal life As he's speaking to the Father, he is himself addressing his Father in heaven. Do you notice that Jesus speaks of himself in the third person as Jesus Christ, a designation that occurs only one other time in this gospel. So here is the Lord Jesus, and he is self-consciously praying out loud, simultaneously speaking to his Father and teaching his church what it is to have eternal life. Of course, it's to be born again. It's to have the life of Christ in the soul of a person. It's to be made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is to live forevermore in the hereafter, in the immediate presence of God. But all of that comes to its climax in the knowledge of God. It seems that You can sum up everything, both the origin and the essence of eternal life in this, that you and I should come to know God. So the first thing I want to point out then is the vital knowledge of God. We we live in a world tonight in which there are many problems. Every human being who is here has their own selection of these problems that the world faces. We're more or less aware of these things in our everyday lives. They come to us sometimes in waves. There are periods of stability and calm in our lives and then suddenly it seems as if everything is shaken up and sometimes it feels as if every bad thing that can happen is being hurled at us from every direction conceivable. There are personal, political, professional conflicts of one kind or another. Some people suffer from a, an, uh, an ennui, a, a, a sense of utter weariness, of discontent, perhaps from an overabundance or a lack of interest or boredom, a feeling of listlessness, a a general dissatisfaction resulting from lack of activity or lack of excitement in their life. Camus spoke of that wasting disease. He called it absurdism. Others suffer from what is sometimes called Marie Antoinette's fever because she coined the phrase that describes it when she said nothing tastes, nothing tastes. There are people, I know them, I've met them, people who experience a meaninglessness in their lives from which only exterior suppressants can give any relief. I've known people who've said to me that their lives have become tasteless in this fundamental sense. So what is the resolution to a life that has become meaningless, tasteless? Lacking vitality, lacking v- life. What's the answer to that? Well, I think the ultimate answer is to have something bigger than yourself to live for. Having something large enough, something objective enough, something so absorbing, something that fires your imagination enough, something that captures your mind and heart and will so much that it fits and fills your life to the full, and draws you out of yourself, draws you upwards towards ultimate meaning and purpose. I think if life is dull for you, if life has lost its purpose and its goal, I'm here to offer you this evening the only solution. For what is greater, what is higher, what is more compelling, what is more gripping and absorbing than that in our little lives we should know God. Now, what do I mean by knowing God? We talk about knowing stuff. Some people know Hebrew very well, some of us not so well. Uh, Some of us know Greek, some of us know German, whatever whatever it may be. We, We use the word to know in a variety of ways, Sometimes we don't, but knowing someone, we're using it in the the sense of an experience. So am I talking about an experience of God? Am I I describing that dreamy moment? Some of you are familiar with this, that moment between waking and sleeping when you feel all fuzzy and warm and crinkly. Your mind is drifting off into some kind of little in-between world. Is that what I'm describing when I say knowing God? Or are we talking about the intellectual equivalent to all that? A kind of eureka moment when truth dawns on us, bursts into our brains. Is knowing God a kind of emotional catharsis with cold shivers and goose pimples all over and strange tingles? We need to answer those questions because we need to know What we're talking about when we know God so that we recognize when we don't. What kind of knowledge then is the knowledge of God? I want to say quite clearly, right at the very beginning, that the knowledge of which we speak this evening is personal knowledge. It is personal knowledge. Though immediately I say that, I have to qualify what I'm saying. Knowing people is a complex business. More complex than knowing a language or knowing a city or knowing a play, for example. I know London. I know London very well. I've walked and driven and visited many parts of that city. I can get you to places in London in peak heavy traffic periods that nobody else can do because I know how to Avoid the busy bits and I know little sneaky bits in order to get from A to B in London. I know it like the back of my hand. How did I get that knowledge? Did I sit and study a map of London? No. When we moved to London, we had two young people, our youngest kids. They were about 14 and 15, I think. I'll be corrected afterwards if I've got that wrong. And uh, they didn't have any friends there. They came from a church, the one we were in in Glasgow, which had about 400 young people in the books, and they came to this new church that we'd gone to, and there was nobody their age. So it was a real shock to the system. And so what we did was we set ourselves the task of discovering London. So in the evenings, once the traffic had died down, we would head off in the car for one of what became known as Daddy's London Drives. People came from all the world to have one of my London Drives. Uh, we would find parts of the city no one else knew about. We would discover treasures. We'd find little corners that you would never see as as a visitor to London. You would never have discovered those things. Uh, we, we found that there were bits to London that are very much better, very much nicer than the bits on the brochure. But knowing London like that, knowing New York, I came to know it later, knowing Paris, I know both of the, all of those cities pretty well, is not the same as knowing a person. Because people just don't give you the freedom to explore every part of their mind, for example. People keep secrets. You can get to know a dog or a horse more easily than you can get to know a person. Why is that? Jim Packer puts it like this, the quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowledge of people depends on them letting us in. It depends on them revealing something of themselves to us. We can be open and friendly towards them, but in the end they decide how much we know of them and how far our friendship with them will go. This is especially true, isn't it, of somebody we think is important, someone we admire perhaps from afar, somebody Is a mover or a shaker, somebody that that we have a great estimation of. We could never hope really to know that great person. We could never pluck up the courage even to go perhaps and say hello and introduce ourselves to them. The most we could hope for is that if we did that, they might say hello back. But that's about as far as we expect it to go. But supposing Supposing there was someone like that, someone you admired so much, somebody really famous, some great celebrity, a, a hero. That's better than a celebrity. Someone you admired with all your heart. And one day you meet them. You don't expect to be introduced, but you find yourself in front of them and they notice you. They, they start the conversation. They speak to you. You find that it's easy to speak to them. You tell them something about yourself. They tell you something about themselves. In fact, they suggest that you meet up and talk more about their plans and their schemes. You meet up again with them. You're overawed that you're meeting this person. They begin to tell you what their hopes and dreams and plans and schemes are. They tell you they want you to be part of what they're planning. They would like you to be involved with them in this great project that they have in mind. How would you feel about that? You'd be surprised, you'd be thrilled, you'd be excited, overawed, unbelieving. You'd feel important. If this person was really the kind of person I'm describing, if this person was as well-known and famous and so on as as I'm describing, life would never be the same again for you. Life would never be dull again for you. Because you know the great man. That That would be the greatest thing. You'd want to tell everybody, wouldn't you? You want to boast about it. The prophet Jeremiah says this, let him who glories, that is, let the one who wants to boast, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. For knowing God is something to boast about, something to get excited about, something to live for, and something worth dying for as well. Now, what happens then when I get to know God? Here is the unapproachable, invisible, incomprehensible God, the God who exists in and of himself, who is not contingent on anything else in the universe as I am, the God who fills all space and time and history, who exists outside of space and time and history, the God for whom the nations are like a drop from a bucket, This God comes to you. He takes the initiative. He comes to you. He begins to speak to you through the words of Scripture, through the truths of Scripture. This is the miracle that happens. Here's a person who knows the Bible. They, they've read the Bible. They've read it for many years perhaps. It's made little sense to them. And then one day all that changes. As they're reading the Bible, suddenly God is talking to them. He is addressing them. He is speaking to them. God is speaking to you. And even where his words are uncomfortable to begin with, as he begins to break things down in your life perhaps, as he brings you low for a moment, you begin to see how far short of his glory you have fallen. You discover your blindness to his truth, your deafness to his voice. You see yourself to be hopeless. You cry to him for forgiveness, which he joyfully grants you. You discover something more. You discover once you've got over that hurdle, as you listen to him, you discover that he is revealing his heart to you. He is making friends with you. He is telling you things about himself that you need to know in order to know him. He is he is taking you, not only, not only is he taking you into his confidence, not only is he telling you these things you need to know about him, but he is actually bringing you on board with his purpose. He's enlisting you into sharing with him his projects and his plans. The Bible has a word for this. It's the word "covenant." In the ancient world, the, the big king, that the emperor, would uh, come along to some little tiddly little king who just had a village, for example, or a little town, and he would come along and he would uh, give a demonstration, display of his greatness and so on. But, but he wouldn't just do that. He would initiate a conversation with this little king he would enlist this little king to be one of his covenant partners. That's what God does with us. We're the little kings. God is the big king. He comes along to us. He initiates the relationship. He comes along to us and calls us to be his personal friend and fellow worker with him. During the Second World War, my uncle had occasion to do a little thing for the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. And he was surprised when he got a phone call, and at the, other, at the other end of the phone call, it was the Prime Minister to thank him for this very little thing that he had done for him. Uncle Willie lived on that for the rest of his life. It was, you would have heard the story many, many times. But it was a great story. The great man had taken the time to call him and speak to him and thank him. And so it is in our relationship with God. There is no higher thing in life, no greater purpose in life, no greater motivation to get up in the morning than to be able to say, I know God. I know God. Now, how do I get to know God? Well, I get to know God the way I get to know any other person. I listen to Him. You will never get to know any other human being unless you listen them boys you want to get to know a girl you must listen to her girl girls I know they don't say very much but if you've really got to push them into it but if you can get them talking you need to listen to what the boys have to say too maybe you need to give them a lot of help actually because they don't have very much to say but but anyway (laughs) we get to know God by listening to him by hearing his word and, and by receiving those words as the Holy Spirit interprets them, and then by applying them to ourselves. We get to know God by noting and remembering and pondering what God says about His nature, the kind of person He is, kind of character that is revealed as we read His words. We, we need to look at the record of what He's done in the past with other people and, and With other nations and so on and look at those things and as we look at what he does, the kind of person he is get to know him if we're going to get to know God we must accept his invitations, the Bible is full of invitations that God gives one of the invitations is that you should sit down at this table and eat this bread and drink this wine it's an invitation to you to come and share this with him Believing His promises. You want to get to know God? You must believe His promises. He makes very many great and precious promises that are for you as the child of God. And then, of course, there are His commands. We must do His commands. And then, of course, we must recognize and rejoice in the love He has shown us. In, first of all, approaching us and then drawing us into His divine fellowship. The Apostle John, who writes this, much later in his life, writes a letter. We know that letter is the first letter of John. And he's writing to people and tells them right at the very beginning that he wants these people to be happy. He wants them to be happy people. He wants them to share the same joy that he had in his heart. And he tells them that this joy, their joy, can be full A joy that the world cannot give, a joy that is based on a living relationship with God. Here's how he puts it Our fellowship, he says, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible uses many analogies to describe this relationship. To know God is to know God as a son or daughter knows their father, as a wife knows her husband, as a subject knows their king. As a sheep follows their shepherd. Once the Apostle Paul went to Athens. Athens was the cultural center of the, of the Roman world. It was known for its religious pluralism. Everywhere you turned there were little places, little god holes in the wall and temples and shrines and, and so on. And you couldn't turn a corner without finding one of these things in Athens. Paul got the chance to speak to them in this city, dominated by Mercury and Jupiter and Mars, a whole variety of gods. And they covered their bases. Paul noticed this. There was one altar that he noticed, and it was erected and dedicated to the unknown God. And so the apostle Paul got up and he said to them, that in spite of all of their religiosity, they were ignorant of the true God. In spite of their pluralism, in spite of having absolutely every God anybody had ever heard of, and even one to the unknown God, they did not know the true God. He went on to proclaim to them this, he said to them, therefore, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you." What is unknown to you is known to me. I want you to know God. Dear friends, this is the great business of the Bible. This is the great heart of the gospel. This is the one word of God that is held before us that we may know the God who can be known. But you notice that Jesus is quite specific here. He refers to the vital knowledge of God, that is, this living knowledge of God. It's eternal life. Therefore, if it gives life, the knowledge of God is vital. It's vital for life. But he also uses this expression, the only true God. He stresses this by using the words only and true. He's presenting God to our sight over and against all other possibilities, all the idols and the gods of the age in which John lived John ends his letter by his first letter later on in, in the Bible by saying to the people he's writing to little children keep yourselves from idols and there are idols today just as there were in John's day John identifies some of them there were certain heresies going around there were errors even in the church and those errors that are an idolatry. If there's a wrong description of God, that's idolatry. If you're not thinking rightly of God, that's idolatry. John identifies that. We need to know that the God we serve is the true God. And this is not simply an issue for people in India, perhaps, or, or somewhere else that have multiple gods. In our context it's an issue for us as well. You see, it's possible to make a material God of gold or silver or wood or stone. But more dangerous, it's possible to have a mental image of God. That's wrong. Like when someone says to you, Oh, I like to think of God as being kind, not critical forgiving, never judgmental. A God who is kind of lazy fair when it comes to certain issues in my life. A God who's all love. Well, there are elements of that that are true, but that's not the balance the Bible gives in its full picture of God. It's not all that God says about Himself. Therefore, it is a wrong mental image of God. Therefore, it is idolatry there are people for example who talk about god as a supreme being or as the ground of all being or as the mind behind matter and what they're describing is an abstra- abstraction not a person we should know that the god of the bible is the self-existing self-sustaining self-authenticating god he needs nothing and no one outside of himself He is not part of the created order. He created everything. He had perfect satisfaction and happiness and love in himself because he is the triune God. That's why Christianity is the only religion that can say God is love because love always has to have an object. And within the triune God, love has always had an object. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father in the love of the Spirit. God has revealed himself to us as the creator, the ruler, the Savior. Jesus said of this God, the God of Israel, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So there is one true God. We need to know the one true God if we're to have eternal life. And we need to know the one true God through the only way to God. Did you notice the way in which Jesus puts this? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you do, if you know God without Christ, you don't have eternal life. If you know Christ without God, you don't have eternal life. You need to know the one true God in and through Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer used to say that when a person comes to God, they have to bow twice. They have to bow first to God as their creator. So in Hebrews chapter 11, a person that comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We bow to God as our creator. But secondly, we have to bow to God as our redeemer in Christ. No one has ever seen God, John wrote back in chapter 1. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only true God can be known only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already said back in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way to God. He's the truth about God. He is the life of God. And without him, we don't know God. He is equal with God. Without the Son, there is no knowledge of God. He's co-eternal with God. He's eternally in the bosom of the Father. Without Jesus, there is no knowledge of God. Now, what this does is this. It puts clear blue water between Christianity and all the other monotheistic religions. We know God only through knowing Jesus Christ, who is God manifest In the flesh. This prayer that we're reading in John seventeen takes place on the last evening of Jesus' life. Earlier that evening, back in chapter fourteen, it's recorded, Jesus had a conversation with one of his disciples called Philip. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You know, when the disciples first met Jesus, they thought they were getting to know a great man, a great rabbi. As time went by, they thought a great healer, a great exorciser of demons, a great teacher, a great prophet of God. Their their categories got bigger, the King of Israel, God's King who's come, the Messiah who's come. They started by following Him, By applauding Him, by acknowledging Him, by confessing Him, by loving Him, and eventually by adoring Him and worshiping Him as God, the God of Israel. When the New Testament tells us that Christ is risen, it means, among other things, that the ascended Jesus who is now in heaven has sent His Spirit into the world, the Spirit who is called the Spirit of Jesus. To make Jesus available so that anyone, anywhere, can enjoy a relationship with Jesus. Better than the relationship the disciples had with him when he was here in the flesh. Because of the Spirit, Jesus' presence is with us wherever we are, all the time. All the time. We know more about Jesus than those early Christians did. We've got all of their testimony and more. And Jesus' way of speaking to us is not the way he spoke to them as he walked the paths of Galilee. He doesn't utter fresh words to us. His way of speaking to us now is by applying to our hearts and consciences by the power of the Spirit the words that we find in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. They're all his words. All of it is the Word of Christ. He's speaking to us. As he walked and talked with the disciples then, so he walks and talks with his disciples today. Even while I've been preaching to you this evening, the Word of God, he is speaking to you. Some people here, an individual in this room this evening, may for the first time hear Jesus speak directly to them. Speak to you for the first time. And as the disciples left everything and followed him, so knowing Jesus means following him wherever he might lead you. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and I know them and they follow me. That's what it means to know God through Jesus Christ. It means to know him personally and to follow him. Now we can sum this up, and I'm going to sum it up using language that Jim Packer uses. He, he uses two things as he sums up this idea of knowing God that I think are useful to us. He puts it like this. Knowing God, is a, knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. It's a personal relationship. We need to know about him. Don't get me wrong. Read all the theology you can because the theology is meant to help you Think more about who God is. It's not incidental. That's not something you can just decide to go in and be a theologian. Every believer is a theologian. We need to know God. We need to know about Him. If you're, if you're getting to know somebody, for example, and you have a bit of a long-distance relationship, and that person... Well, in the olden days, they would write you letters. You don't get that anymore. But they send you texts and emails. You read the texts and the emails then. You look on their Facebook page. You find out more about them. The more you find out about them, the more you find out about them, the more your love for them is kindled. The way God deals with us today is that as we learn more about Him, so we learn what He Likes. I mean if you're going out with a girl and she likes roses you don't want to give her carnations because you'll get into trouble that happened to me once the roses had finished it was Friday roses day and I went in looking for roses everywhere and I brought home carnations and it was the wrong thing you don't want to do that you don't want to make that mistake and it's this relationship with God is 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 analogous to that kind of thing. You get to know what pleases Him. That's why we listen to His voice. Because we want to get to know Him. It's a matter of personal dealing. And it's a matter of personal involvement. Because getting to know someone takes time, doesn't it? It takes effort. You have to commit yourself to their company and interests. You have to be ready to identify with their concerns. You get to become concerned about the things they're concerned about. You get to think about things the way they think about things. That's what meaningful relationships are all about. And in the Christian life, that's what our relationship with God is like. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. So I ask you this evening do you know God? I mean, the last thing I need to say probably about this is that knowing God is a matter of grace because He takes the initiative. He invites us into His company. He makes friends with us. Here are His love letters to you. Read them. Let's pray. Our Father... In heaven, we thank you that you have taken the initiative in so many ways to reach out to us. And by the power of the Spirit, we pray this evening that you would draw us into your company, that you would speak to our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.